0: Our Training and Response Podcast. This is episode 12, where we talk with Tom Bradkey and Chuck Gross about large and small animal considerations during water rescues.
1: Welcome back everybody to the AceR Training and Response Podcast. With me today is co-host Carla Lewis. Carla, how are you feeling this morning? I'm doing great. Great. And also with us, we're excited to have for our first time ever, we've got two guests on because they're sitting side by side and work together. We have Tom Bradkey from Naperville, Illinois Fire, and also a Rescue 3 International instructor and helps uh, and instructs with North Central Water Rescue. Good morning, Tom.
2: Good morning, Eric. How are you, sir?
1: Great. And sitting next to you is Chuck Gross, also with Naperville Fire. Uh, and works with the Illinois Task Force One and USAR teams as both a responder and trainer, and also trains and instructs with North Central Water Rescue. Thank you, Chuck, for joining us. How are you, sir?
3: Oh, fantastic today.
1: Great. Uh, we're excited to have you guys on today because it's, it's been a, an interesting ride the last two years with the ASAR uh, resource typing being published by FEMA which opened the gateway for USAR teams and ASAR teams to be mission ready packaged together and it also gay opened the door to credentialing animal rescue specialists with the updated ASAR technician training guidelines. Now for our listeners that have no idea what I just said, we're going to work through (laughs) some of those topics today and we're going to tell you what it translates to in the real world. The credentialing piece is important for the responders uh, because we want to know that when we package these resources together to help in your communities that we're bringing the best to the best in that experience that keeps our, our community safe that keeps our animals safe and it keeps our responders safe so that's important to us but we'll translate that on how that that really works in the real world during a disaster but for let's let's get back to Tom and Chuck gentlemen if you will take a few minutes and introduce yourself and kind of talk about what's going on in the world
2: well good morning this is tom Bradkey from uh, naperville fire department uh, as uh, eric has said we, we've been with the fire department here in naperville illinois for uh, quite a number of years now um, people typically don't think of uh, the midwest or illinois as an area where we have a lot of swift water and flood responses but what we thought we'd want to do is uh, kind of open your eyes a little bit and show you um, where our background came from and how we got our start uh, rescue 3 international as well as north central water rescue was a endeavor we started back in 1996, actually. Uh, Why 1996 was so important was because in July of 1996, uh, the community of Naperville, Illinois, and the western suburbs of Chicago experienced one of the most historic rains we've had in quite some time. Uh, In that 24-hour period, we ended up with 17 inches of rain. Um, which we thought was pretty significant. Um, The problem we had is that we actually have a river that runs right through the middle of Naperville and splits our town in half. Now, normally rain events like that doesn't bring out a tremendous amount of individuals or crowds or play uh, boat players or anything along those lines. But the problem we encountered was that the following day, the, the, the skies, um, you know, the skies parted, the sun came out, and it turned into an 83-degree uh, day and sunny,
1: mm.
2: which meant most people thought, well, hey, there's water out here. Let's go play in the water. Mm. So, lo and behold, we had a group of individuals that thought it would be a fantastic idea to go to their local Walmart, buy an inflatable swimming pool, <laughs> Throw it in the flood ravaged rivers and let's go for a float. Oh, no. (laughs) Needless to say, didn't work out too well for them. They maybe got about 500 yards downstream. The boat, or swimming pool as you may, capsized. They ended up in an island, maybe 50 to 100 yards offshore. Well, at that point in time, the Naperville Fire Department had a dive team. We didn't have a swift water or flood response team. We had a dive team. But since it was a water-related emergency, they thought, well, let's call the dive team, get the divers out there, and let's see what they can do. So that's what we did. And as any good first responder would do, we did the best we could with what we had at that point in time. The problem being is that we didn't know what we didn't know until it was too late. Mm. On that day... We sent rescuers into the water, untrained, unanchored, without proper equipment, and nearly killed three of our own firefighters trying to effect rescue of these individuals.
1: Mm.
2: Once that incident was over, we decided, you know what, we can't continue down this road. We've got to make change. So at that point in time, took it upon myself, working with our dive team, called Rescue 3 International, met up with a gentleman by the name of Tim Rogers, who is a multi-year award winner of the Higgins and Langley Awards, who is a battalion chief for the Charlotte, North Carolina Fire Department, and who has developed programs around the country with, uh, with respect to swift water and flood response. I met with him in 1999, and we had our first class in 2000 here in Naperville, Illinois. Since then, we've hosted many classes. Myself, Chuck have gone through the instructor process, And North Central Water Rescue was formed in 2013. Since that time, we've run classes throughout the Midwest as well as the Southeast. We've trained over 750 personnel since that time. And we run about five to seven classes per year, not only in the Midwest, but throughout the uh, Southeast as well. So that's who we are.
3: Well, that's how you are. That's how I
2: am. I mean, you're you're way better than I am.
3: (laughs) so so uh, so tom did a really good job there talking about exactly where we came from um, there's a lot to the story obviously uh, my name is chuck gross working for the naperville fire department i've been working for the last 20 years here tom's had a couple more years before me at the naperville fire department but um, i've gotten the chance to uh, get my hands a little bit deeper into uh, like the national and uh, statewide responses towns pretty much stayed local and then he's done the teaching with uh with myself and, and another individual, but um, I've gotten the chance to work with our state USAR our team. Uh, with that, I've been able to develop a program and then start to look at deploying for these water emergencies. And locally, we see this, and nationally we're seeing this, and, and you guys can all attest to the same thing, is that we're getting floods more often than we've ever had before. And we've been in a situation locally where it was uh, maybe a call happens, you know, once every couple of years because of our little tiny little creek that we have, but uh, now it's every single year, and it's multiple times every year. And it's now not only in the summertime, but we're getting calls in the wintertime when there's ice on the river. Mm. So, and obviously we're seeing this across the country with hurricanes and flooding and stuff like that. It's just with today's environment, we're getting more and more situations where people are having to be rescued or situations where people are being cut off from their natural egress um, in their communities. Uh, and we'll get into this a little bit later in the in the interview here is that, we had a good situation down in the Southern Illinois area just last year where we were down there for two months, roughly about two months. And uh, we're down there responding and assisting people because of the the Mississippi and the Ohio river coming up so much. So I've got a chance to uh, dive into that a little bit. And I've, I've put my fingers in my, uh, my, uh, my sit down brain with, uh, the state and also have developed some of the programs with the state in regards to flooding. And one of the things that we have looked at is specifically this animal portion, because it's really easy to go to floods and stuff and find out, yeah, we need to rescue people, but there is that other component. And I mean, now, especially after Australia, I mean, the component of rescuing animals and everything is, Is definitely in the forefront, so it is it is no longer a a secondary thought in rescue teams, and that's one thing that we're really trying to push is having some of that knowledge. And Eric, you and 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 Brett coming out there, you know, last couple of years helping us out with that has definitely opened our eyes and and helped us move in that direction. We're definitely not there to the level that you guys are or the level that I think that the the whole country should be in response. But I think we're going in that right direction, you know, following your lead. So thank you for that.
1: No, and and you guys were incredible to work with. And what I really, uh, for those that are looking for, and we'll talk about this more, but if you come to an ASAR class, we give you the basics of self-rescue, team rescue, and animal rescue. We don't emphasize all the strategic technical details of human rescue and human packaging. We're here to teach you how to take care of yourself and your team as as an ASAR team and then we want you to go on and take additional human rescue training and this is why I have such respect for you 2 in North Central Water Rescue, because you not only teach the intro to Swift Water, the Swift Water Advanced, which the Swift Water Advanced is amazing, guys, if you ever go. <laughs> um, is the, and the Swift Water One is amazing also. But the Advanced, there's nothing like it in the country. I will tell you, I've been through a lot of courses, and there's nothing like that Advanced course that they do. But you guys don't just stop with what's in the book. You actually problem solve. You look at scenarios and say, what can we push ourselves to next and what can we learn from it it may not be successful but let's safely push the edge of that because that's real world and so many times we see teams and instructors get complacent over the years of this works i'm going to settle with it and and we find that they're it's always changing our scenarios are never the same and when you add an animal component uh to it it can be even more challenging um, so, with all that, guys, what got you started in technical rescue did, did it just come naturally from the fire service or or how did you find and and want to add that technical component?
3: Well, for myself, I know that when I first started, you know most firemen will say they have this drive to help and 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 have the kind of the the textbook answer on why you're a fireman um, when I got involved with the, the fire service and the medical aspect, it just seemed natural. I was already a diver and um, working my way towards like an instructor status anyways. And it just kind of fell into play. And it was, it was like one of those things that, you know, it, it was another avenue to go out and help. It was another avenue to get more training. And in the fire service, you can be kind of lazy or you can actually be a student of the game. And I chose to be a student of the game, and I, and I continue to choose that. And you can take so many fire classes, and then pretty much you're topped out at the fire classes. And so in order to increase your knowledge and your experience is that uh, I kind of looked at the specialty. And you can go in a whole bunch of different ways there. So I, I got into the technical rescue with the rope and the confined space and the, the collapse and, and all of that aspect. And then the water component was something that I've always been passionate about. And it's worked out really, really well, you know, teaming up with Tom, you know, and then falling into positions, you know, I got to be the coordinator here in Naperville, and and then the divisional coordinator for multiple departments, you know, and it's just, it's worked out so well that I've been able to, you know, experience and get into different avenues. And unfortunately, I've pushed myself into that spot where now I'm not that go person, which is, not exactly what I want, but, uh, you know, I guess somebody has to stand back and kind of kind of direct the circus, you know, and I've kind of moved myself and I know Eric, you're probably in that position sometimes too. Right. And it's just, it's frustrating, but it's it's necessary, right? So we got to make sure, you know, our guys are trained, but, you know, I'm kind of in that position now, more at the state and then USAR level is, you know, kind of helping out and making sure that that process continues to go and people still have that drive, you know, and and I still have that drive, you know. And what about you, Tom? Yeah, and, you know, kind of mirror, uh, mirroring what Chuck has said. Um, you know, my my background
2: before I got into the fire service was actually heavily involved in water. Um, growing up on you know on swim teams and being part of uh, water parks, and then as a teenager, getting into working as a lifeguard. Um, and and lifeguarding initially to me was kind of boring, I guess. So I looked for the challenge, and the challenge was taking my initial lifeguard certification and moving it up to working in water parks, uh, working in the surf, uh, working in moving water situations. And I thought that was much more challenging, and I loved the, the opportunities that it presented um, at those times. But knowing that, you know, the lifeguard is not a career opportunity in the Midwest, at least. Oh, Watch. Um, well, uh, you know, I like, know. I, <laughs> if I looked like you, Chuck, you know, I'd be doing Baywatch. <laughs> I mean, you know... <laughs> but so you know when I got into the fire service I thought and that's actually how we got our start my start in the fire service one of the instructors for the lifeguard process that I went through was a member of a local fire department he says you know have you looked into the fire service and I'm thinking how does that pertain to lifeguarding he's like let me just show you so that's kind of where I got my start I I transitioned from the lifeguard days to the fire service and figured you know what what better way to show and to share the passion that I had for water through lifeguard and surf rescue than to kind of build that niche within the fire department with respect to surface rescue. I mean, like I said, when I first started here, we had a dive team. I had no, no real interest in becoming a diver. Um, I I like to use a quote that a friend of mine, uh, Tim down in North Carolina, uses all the time. He says, you know what, I don't understand why people go scuba diving because there's things down there that'll bite you. Um, (laughs) I I, I kind of agree with that. I've had that situation. But surface rescue is a whole different animal in and of itself, I guess. Um, And so it's always been a passion of mine to stay involved in the surface uh, swift water surf component. And... Working with Rescue Three and doing the Swiftwater Rescue Technician classes just kind of fell into place as a natural transition, and it's been it's been a fantastic ride ever since.
1: Yeah, you guys that, that do dive work, I, I, uh, you're better people than I am. I try to stay on top of the water. <laughs> Under the water right. is bad in my world. Uh, yeah. And so, what? What? With all that. uh, being put into play uh, and having all those different disciplines has given you uh, a great situational awareness training and the the training grounds there in Naperville uh, are amazing and we can talk a little bit more about that towards the end on how people can get involved with you guys in training. One of the aspects that we're adding in into late 2020 and early 2021 now is large animal water rescue and specifically how do you deal with large animals doing boat operations and we we started to teach that a couple years ago and found out that we were giving people just a little bit of information we didn't give them the whole stories we didn't give them great scenarios and they were going out there and literally killing animals because they didn't have all the information they needed so we quit training it all together and then i had teams come back and say you can't stop You know you have to do it different. We need this information uh, because we've actually you know done testing with live horses down at Louisiana Tech. Uh, We'll be down there again this spring um, and to see how these live horses react in different scenarios along these boats and it really is quite enlightening to work with these live animals that want to swim and see how their reactions when we get them near motorized vehicles and the hazards that come from that. So uh, we're gonna start in August up with Wisconsin, uh, the Southwest regional team, I believe. We, we did some ASAR training with them last year. We're going back up to start the large animal training with them. And we're gonna work uh, primarily with uh, mannequins to start with to show proper swimming and what we've learned, but then we're hoping to actually incorporate live animals so these technicians uh, can actually get out there and see what 1200 pounds of I don't want to do this looks like and what they may have to deal with in real life. Uh, So we're you know going to be excited to to work with your team also uh, or North Central Water Rescue to really start to push out the best practice lessons learned from this research in the future.
0: So Tom and Chuck, um, so I'm an animal control officer for a small police department in Kansas City, and um, our fire department has been called out numerous times for animal issues, mostly, you know, dogs on the ice, where obviously there's typically a human involved or a human that wants to be involved. Um, What is your guys' experience with animal issues, and have you seen a change in the last few years on how fire departments are handling those?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are seeing a change. Uh, one of the issues that we have around here is since we're in the Midwest, you know, it's, it's hit or miss if we have ice. And so a lot of these little areas that we have where homes are, they have the retention ponds. And so one of the things that we're having is that we have this, this retention pond that will freeze, but then we have, you know, a section in the middle that has the aerator on. And so there's still some moving water in there and so we've been running into problems with that because then that's going to attract waterfowl so it's going to attract geese and so then in turn dogs are going to chase after geese so we've been having problems that dogs will go chase after that and then they will end up going in the water Um, it is a common thing that we train now that uh, we tell all of our firefighters you know where we let them know that uh, yes we are going after an animal You know, we are definitely going after a dog or an animal that's out there because just like you said, Carla, is that if we don't do anything, then somebody else is going to do it. They're going to take it upon themselves and do it themselves. So we have to protect, you know, the public from themselves because, you know, good-hearted is is great, but it can be very dangerous. So we are running into that. One of the ways that we are trying to fix it is that uh, we actually – have communicated with some of the areas that have these aerators and um, and animals aren't the only problem that we have with this aeration. You know we do have some situations with autistic kids and stuff like that going out there and going on the ice um, because they see the water and they like that. but um, we've communicated with some of these townhomes and uh, these uh, condo associations and worked with them to turn off their aerators and allow that pond to completely freeze over and take that hazard away. You know, but in the Midwest here, you know, we do uh, have warm, cold, warm, cold all the time. And so sometimes we're going to have that uh, water situation. Uh, One thing that we did add to our vehicles now, and this is is going now falling into what the ASAR stuff is that we've put some of the catch poles on there, you know, because we've talked with some of our firemen and we don't want them just to kind of jump into a situation that's going to potentially harm them that they're not used to. So if they're not used to or having the training to go in and rescue a dog is that we've got now the lengthy catch poles that they can move their way out there and actually get some kind of an attachment point onto that animal, the dog, you know, the the, the whatever, the deer, you know, the yeah, antlers yeah, of the deer you know, pretty much anything in there. And then you're able to guide, you know, that animal, you know, through ice or help them keep their head up or whatever it is, or at least pull the head away from another rescuer coming in to obviously get that dog or that animal out. So it is definitely something that we think of right away now, because we never thought about it before, you know, and we just kind of blew it off. But um, we've realized that, you know, you have to act, you know, we have to go out there and do something. And now a more than ever, is that everybody has a cell phone. So if you show up on the scene, and you do nothing, that looks bad. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so we need to do something and, and we do care about the animals too. Obviously, you know, you know, people care, you know, very highly about their, their, their pets. And, you know, I've got, a, I got a dog that, you know, that's that home that I care for a lot. And I can only imagine what my wife would do if that dog went out on the ice. She'd be flying out there. So, you know, we got to make sure that we are helping the citizens, you know, protect themselves and everything that they love, you know.
1: Yeah, that, that's really become forefront. And, of course, we've known that all along in some fashion. Hurricane, clear back to Hurricane Katrina brought the, brought the focus to it. We got the Pets Act coming out uh, after Hurricane Katrina that says every jurisdiction should be preparing for animals and they threw some money at it to encourage states and jurisdictions to actually make an animal plan and we saw the creation of templates for the community planning but then often we don't see those templates completed and to actually hear that there's agencies like Naperville fire that have now gone to the extent of putting animal restraint and capture tools on their trucks so their guys can have use of that. Um, That says so much for a proactive community planning and response uh, for animals because you know not every jurisdiction uh, animal control officers don't always get over to the fire department on a regular basis to introduce themselves. Um, Very rarely uh, is an animal component Brought into a department as a focus of training. Now we're seeing that change just a little bit. I think with with uh, different agencies uh, and mm-hmm. the fact that we're seeing more stories on on social media. And and Chuck, uh, you posted a, a video the other day or yesterday of a South Carolina rescue. It was a yeah, I saw that. That was great. Yeah. Uh, and the, there's flooding going on in South Carolina right now. And there was a dog, a uh, rather large dog left in his dog house. Um, and the dog house is almost submerged and a yeah. uh, they paddle out and the firefighter does a great job uh, using a probe stick to go out to the dog, grabs the dog, gets him back in, and they get the dog in the, in the boat to safety. And one of the comments we saw on the ASAR Training Response Facebook page was, well, why would you ever leave your pets behind? And the fact is, most people don't want to leave their pets behind, but that person may not have been home. They may have been at work yeah. when the floodwaters came up, or they couldn't get back to it. So then they're gonna call their fire department And hopefully their fire department has some idea of of how to go out and and deal with this dog. Now that dog looked like it was fairly hypothermic or lethargic. (laughs) Yeah, sure did. (laughs) Was ready to get the heck out of the water. Um, they definitely saved its life, and they're not always that way. Sometimes they're so scared they can there can be an issue. Um, And that kind of drops us into our next topic. And again, this is more for our emergency management guys, our planners, and our professionals for credentialing. But one of the most common questions we get or confusion we have from people looking for credentialing is uh, if they want to be an animal rescue specialist or do they want to be an ASAR technician. And animal rescue specialist and technical animal rescue came first, guys. That was part of the Rescue 3 International Curriculum, is still part of the Rescue 3 International Curriculum. And that curriculum was meant to be brought to first responders to give them some technical animal rescue basic operations. So when they're out there doing their human rescue is that if they have to deal with an animal, they have basic skills to handle that situation right then and there. It was never intended to put teams in for dedicated week-long missions and have full encompassing knowledge on how to deal with every species of animal in every situation. Where the difference falls between the USAR animal rescue specialist training And the ASAR training is the ASAR training was built back in 2013 at the request of USDA and FEMA, as we started to see more animal issues in these catastrophic events. And they said, we need to develop ASAR teams that can support USAR team so USAR teams are going to go first they're going to do their life safety missions they're going to say they're going to encounter an animal maybe that animal isn't going to come quietly because he's so scared maybe that animal fled into the house and it can't be found and they're going to mark that address say hey an ASAR team needs to come in and be able to spend an hour here or a couple hours here to deal with the situation we're going on because there's more people to help so the mm-hmm. ASAR training Um, really does dig in to give the animal control people, or we have we have a ton of first responders with us now, Um, the more in-depth training where they're gonna be able to know how to deal with exotic species with large animals in a variety of situations. So for my ASAR people that call up and say I want to take the USAR animal rescue specialist class, no we don't provide that to you because you've already had more in-depth training Um, on an ASAR team, that USAR training is specifically for these first responders that are doing hasty search and rescues and just need to get by until uh, ASAR teams can support them. Um, It it wasn't ever meant for dedicated mission training. So that helps us though because those things do meld together. Our trainings do cross-pollinate really well and we start to see now um, a, a change number one in the resource typing of we're seeing animal competencies put into the USAR uh, definitions and then, of course, the specific position trainings of animal rescue specialists. Guys, are you seeing more conversations when you work with other USAR teams and and other state emergency management? Do you see those teams looking to, to become more credentialed?
3: Yeah, I, you know, actually um they they do the IAWRP conference in South Bend Indiana every year and then they're also doing one out west out in California. Now you got to tell um, everybody
1: what that means. That's a big acronym. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. The the uh what is
3: it uh the International, International Association International oh, yeah. Water
2: Rescue Re- uh, Professionals.
3: Yeah. International Association of Water Rescue Professionals. So that is an organization with basically a lot of uh you know, like-minded individuals getting together and uh, working on making the swiftwater water flood response not only for people, but uh, for animals and pretty much any response into the water, you know, contingency, make that happen and, and, and trying to build standards. Uh, it's a conference that they put on. Like I said, there's one in California and there's also one in South Bend, Indiana in June and it's kind of nice because everybody does get together you have a lot of like-minded people a lot of like-minded task force individuals and other teams you know that are there that are just trying to you know get on the same page and one of the things that we were discussing last year was you know how do we add in more animal components and and just like you were saying eric is that yeah we we are concentrated on the human aspect but we do realize that people do love their pets so much that you run into a situation and it could be a violent situation that the individual will not leave their home without their animal. Mm. And so those teams have to have a way to deal with that. And it's not just forcefully moving that person or it's not just forcefully moving the animal. It's there, There's got to be a nice controlled way, you know, so it makes it safe for everybody, you know. And so we have to deal with that and we have to recognize that. Um, and at the USAR level, one of the things that we've discussed, and, and I've recognized this, and so we've, we've actually dealt with this when we were down in Florence in 2018 and then um, actually last year down in Southern Illinois, is, yeah, you'll get there and if it's flooding, like right after a hurricane, it's all go, 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 but then eventually it starts to slow down. And you're still going to be moving around in the community, trying to look and see if anybody needs assistance. But at that time, you're going to start realizing that you have to deal with some of these other situations, like the animal and whatnot. And I know the ASAR teams, and you're out there, but obviously you guys can't be everywhere. (laughs) You know, you were down there in Florence in the same area I was, and I never saw you. (laughs) Right. you know our community. You know it was a, it was a good 50 square miles in the Regalwood community there, and there was obviously nobody there except for us and the owners to help with these animals. And and we did have a couple situations. You know where we had to go and and help some some dogs. And and then there was a uh, there was a very unique situation. And a little short story is is that we got called by an individual saying we've got some horses that are on high ground and we need to move them. And we're like, okay. And now we've had the experience of, of talking to you, cause this obviously just happened. And uh, and they were like, okay, well, let's go over there. And, and we need to rescue these horses. And we were working with the owner and we're like, okay, well, let's go over and evaluate your situation. And, and we got over there and this was traveling across a major waterway there. It was the Cape Fear River. And Mm -hmm. so it was very large at that point. And so they made it over to the other side. And so this, the owner, they wanted to take the horses and put them in the boat. So... (laughs) So you can see on how that would be a problem. And when we look at our aluminum boats, like the rescue one aluminum boat is 16 feet long. It's nice and wide. We can take the benches out of it and it's a big platform. And it may look obviously very sturdy like a barge, but it's not meant for that kind of situation. And I'm sure you can agree with that. Yeah. And, um, and, but obviously some people, they don't know what they don't know. So they wanted to do that. And, and when it, luckily, some of the individuals that were there that went through some some training with you and and spoke with you know myself i went through the large animal class down in louisiana with tom mm-hmm. and uh we kind of advised them and said well here's your options and we talked about well you know we can you know get them food and and allow them to stay there longer you know or figure something else out and and the owners were like well you know what we want you just to drive the boats next to us, and then we're going to ride the horses across the Cape Fear.
1: Oh, dear Lord. Yeah.
3: (laughs) So, and they're like, this is what they want to do. And now this was getting close, obviously, to the evening, so light is starting to drop, and it was just getting to be a bad situation. So luckily, the guys were able to communicate with those owners that that was a bad situation and um, not recommended to do And we figured out another alternate route going another direction, not across the Cape Fear, just to get them to some higher ground to get them some food. And and they were able to be there a little bit longer. Um, So that's one of those things is that we need to give the knowledge. And we encourage us all the time is you got to have some knowledge to go to because if you don't have any ideas, you just punch. And if it comes all the way back to well, my heartstrings are pulling really hard. I'm just going to do this because I think it's right. Sometimes that puts you in a really bad situation and and sometimes people can get hurt or killed. You know, so giving this basic knowledge of the ASAR search and rescue, you know, the basic knowledge of just getting out there and how to assist with large animal or a small animal or or just what you can do, that is huge in the, the FEMA and the USAR range because you know it when you're it's a disaster you know it's you're out there on your own and you got to do what you can do so you just want to make sure that the guys are safe so the more knowledge the better
0: yeah i mean sometimes i think one of the hardest things is uh the the feed in place aspect of things where it's actually so many times just safer to leave that animal where it's at and it's very hard for people and owners to actually accept that sometimes
3: yeah yeah it it was and, and and it was like and we would go back daily you know and checking on that and, and making sure everything was good and stuff and and so and it, and it worked out which was really nice you know but it was obviously a, a little different situation the guys weren't used to you know going and and having that presented to them so and you're you're always surprised at a hurricane the, the, the couple times i've been out on major disasters is that uh it never uh stops to amaze me on the things, and I'm like, man, I never thought I'd see that, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, and for those, you know, that have been listening to some of the podcasts, there's, there'll be stories coming up. Uh, it, the Cape Fear River that Chuck is talking about, that's the one that was 17 miles wide at its largest point, and there were so many large animal issues of all different species, um, and, you know, that's why we're doing this dedicated large animal floodwater program now, Uh, because we're going to talk about feeding in place. We're going to talk about what you can put on a platform or what you can put on a boat um, and how if you're going to be dead set to do it, what do you need to do it. And then we're going to talk about helicopter lifts. Um, During the Nebraska flooding uh, this spring, uh, there were some large animal issues that you were not only dealing with water, you were dealing with ice. And ice and moving water, guys, is that that's a no-go. It, it's just you don't mess with that stuff unless you have really highly skilled people that know how to work around that. And even then, we're not getting in the water most times. So, when people are calling to say, come put your boats in the river. Well, it's going to be the Titanic because there's a giant iceberg coming down there. It's going to sink my boat and crush me into 10 tons of ice. Okay, let's helicopter lift the horses out. All right, let's think about this. It sounds good on the on the premise, but to helicopter lift a, a, a horse out, that horse number one is compromised. It's hyperthermic. It's been standing in cold water, and now you're going to have to partially sedate it to get it in the sling. Putting on the specialized sling takes a good 20 minutes if you know what you're doing. You, this now hypothermic horse that you have to sedate, let's say he falls down in the water. They're dedicated nose breathers folks. What happens when that 150 pound head goes underwater and they take that first big snortful and fill their lungs full of water? That horse is now most likely gonna die because of all those complications. On top of the issues of aerosolizing any nastiness in that water, having specialized people to work in the landing zone, the helicopter, you gotta find one that's even gonna do the lift, let alone who's gonna pay for this stuff. So it's not as simple as just go lift these animals out or go stick them in a boat. The logistics and the safety of the animal uh, have to be thought through to the end, and we talk to that about our teams all the time. Think it through to the end. Don't get started halfway um, because uh, I, I know you can't envision this, but the Cape Fear River was rocking and rolling to a point where if you weren't an experienced boat operator and you got into current and trees, you were going to wrap your boat in half and be mm-hmm. an issue. So uh, it sounds like you guys made really wise decisions, and I'm glad you guys had sought sought advice on some of that. Absolutely,
3: and and that's one thing is that when you get obviously to these larger disasters, like you said, the Cape Fear, and it's it's not something you can prepare for. And the guys that have gone, and they, and luckily, just a year before that, they went through the NIMS, you know, boat operator class where we operate in class three and four and higher rapids, you know, and move these our boats, our sixteen foot boats, and we control and move through large bodies of water and and we did that down on the ohio river which worked out extremely well because now we're in a situation where they have to traverse across a large river or a large body of water you know with waves and unpredictable areas and so you know it's 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 grabbing that knowledge wherever you can. And, and hopefully those individuals are placed in the positions, you know, to make that decision, you know, but uh, we've seen, and this is something that we've discussed more at the local level is that we've had so many flooding and the problem that we're having with individuals is that they're not trained to the level of a USAR team. So they're not with that high level of a NIMS compliant, you know, swift water component for boat operators. And that's basically where you spend five days with a boat and you're in obviously high rolling you know, water and rivers and class three rapids and with you know getting people in and out of the boat and stuff. And so it really ups your education and your, your performance. What we're seeing in the local level is that guys that are being deployed to these swift situations for these flood situations have a very basic, if anything, boat knowledge. And so we're really driving more education in regards to operating a boat because we had individuals last year go down to southern Illinois. And now they're traveling over a mile across flooded fields in the Mississippi River, which that's big water, you know, and um, very dangerous depending on the watercraft that you're in. And so we're really trying to push that education more at the local and state level. And I'm sure people are seeing that across the country, but uh, we're trying to get that out there and being available, you know, so, so people don't get injured.
0: Yeah, I mean, that kind of reminds me of, of us with our ASR classes is I have a lot of people say, you know, why are you taking a swift water class? When are you ever going to be in that situation? And we always talk about how, you know, we're we train to do a, a higher level of difficulty than what we ever anticipate ourselves being in.
3: Hmm. Hmm. Absolutely, because because what we what we tell people is that when you have a flood, that means there's a lot of water there and the water is traveling somewhere. So it's not going to stay there. It's going to travel. So somewhere in a flooded situation, in every flooded situation, there is moving water somewhere. If it's between two houses or between some trees, like Eric was talking about, or through a roadway, there is fast moving water. And where that fast moving water, unfortunately, that's where the call is going to be, you know, because somebody's going to try to do something and they're going to get stuck or that's where you're going to have to move an animal across. And you need to be able to deal with that.
0: For our ASAR responders, we do recommend trained at that higher level. Yeah, they've completed their ASR classes, but we also recommend that they go and do a human rescue course um, such as the ones that you guys teach. What classes do you recommend for responders kind of to start with and and you know kind of what's the progression there?
2: So Carla, what I'm gonna what I'm gonna talk about and then kind of a shameless plug real quickly to rescue three <laughs> to <laughs> to rescue three international is that one of the reasons why we chose to um, I mean, and there's many different training agencies out there. We, re, we, we realize that. We recognize that. We know what's out there. But the reason we chose Rescue 3 as the corporate structure that we wanted to work with is because Rescue 3 gives the instructors the latitude to basically custom build their courses to whatever they feel the needs are for either a local jurisdiction or a statewide jurisdiction or even a federal team. Um, we start off, and, and the beauty of it is we start off with the basic uh, Swiftwater Rescue Technician series of classes. Um, as with any other type of specialty class, there is an awareness process to it. Uh, there is an operations level process to it. And then there's a technician level process to it. We go right in and jump in with both feet right into the technician level class. We found that using that format, Um, starts the individuals out at the most basic awareness level, gives them information that will hopefully be able to be utilized in a fashion where they get a good understanding and appreciation for what swift water and flood response uh, incidents can actually create. But at the same time, it gives them the same skills and abilities that a technician level individual is going to use, whether it be not only awareness of the situation, but operationally how to make themselves safe and then finally getting into the technician level as far as being able to perform rescues of individuals in the water the SRT class is a three-day class it's a fantastic opportunity to learn all those skills and objectives in a three-day format we do it in a natural environment we like using a river uh, that we have locally for the training because it provides us with a lot of the same features you're going to encounter in this with water environment outside of where we're at right now. And Eric, as Eric stated, he went through our advanced
1: class, right, Eric? Uh, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I attended the advanced class. I don't know that. I was, <laughs> yeah. I, well, going through, it was probably good. I went through the rapids. I didn't, you know, survive much, but no. It's... Well, you're still here today. <laughs> right? I can live to talk about it and promote it. On a
2: good note, I will tell you that we have not killed one. We have not had one individual killed in any of our classes that have come (laughs) back and complained about it. (laughs) Uh, But what we do with the advanced class, we like to step it up a notch. We'll take it to a little bit bigger water. We'll throw some scenarios at you. And the best thing I I think, and Eric, what I want you to do is, I want you to throw out what you thought was the best part of the advanced class. What did you like about it?
1: The, the advanced class, there, there were several things that stood out. Number one, you host the class at, uh, at uh, a resort, not, not a resort, but, but a, a cabin area,
3: mm-hmm. and
1: so people can uh, be part of the training, have that team bonding with people that, are, that, are, that they can talk to, learn from, and you're not rushed to get things done. You can actually sit there, you can have an after action because you're sitting around the fire, enjoying the evening and it's it's a relaxed learning environment. Um, but there's also uh, a lot of different scenarios up in that water. There's there's obstacles, there's small stream scenarios, there's large river, there's quick water, there's real class three water. And that's the biggest thing for, for our responders or anybody looking for swift water training. I've been through, I've been doing this for almost 20 years, and I've been through a lot of different swift water classes at parks, at different rivers, and to really meet the standard of class three water, it's something special. We all feel like a high class two is tough to swim in. It can be tough to swim in, um, but class three is a whole different beast, and uh, I've encouraged a lot of my responders that thought they'd been in big water, to go to that advanced class. And, and granted, we were in uh, spring and we had pretty good flow through the river. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there'd been rain up there, but still, um, I've seen a lot of water in my day and that one was intimidating. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there was one spot Chuck Chuck, it took us <laughs> up to and uh, and we were looking down over this cliff in this water and I'm thinking to myself, surely not. We're, we're not really gonna do this, are we? And I, I'm thinking about, all right, well, who is my last will and testament to before I go jump in this swirling mess? And the fact was, you know, it, it was more of a fun factor of, hey, go look at this water. And by now, you guys should realize how stinking dangerous it would be to jump in here. Um, and that was the whole point of the exercise was that situational awareness and the recognition of this is bad, don't do this. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then they take us down to to where this this blows out. And it's the edge of Bad, but then it gets better, and they teach you how to get on the edge of bad and survive it and you know Brett'll tell you he had a basketball size bruise on his butt um, i I was not in the shape that I should have been, and <laughs> tore the crap out of my shoulder and so yes you did it's it's not for for somebody that hasn 't gone swimming for five years. you have yeah. to be dedicated to it, but it was the the second most um, uh practical experience that I would go through again just to push it again um, because once you go through it and you look at other water, then you really have better scope on your capabilities and what is realistic for for a rescue
2: and that's really that has truly been our goal with our programs with both the, the swift water rescue technician as well as with the Swiss Water Rescue Technician Advanced Class. There are many organizations out there. We, Like I said, we know there are many organizations out there teaching classes, but we wanted to make ours something different, something special, something more applicable. Yeah, we have the skills and objectives sheet that we have objectives we have to meet. But like I said, Rescue 3 has given us the latitude to say, hey, if there's something unique to your environment, then add it to the class. And, and like you pointed out earlier, Eric, it's like it's challenging the individuals beyond their comfort zone and putting them in scenarios that yeah it's gonna raise the hair on the back of your neck and make you think what the heck am I getting myself into but then when you do encounter that situation in a real life scenario you're like I got this no big deal I've done this I can get through this we've we've had departments where we've gone to do the training with them and we've had chiefs of departments come out and say is that really safe is that really what my guys should be doing And by day three, they're like, man, this was fantastic. We needed to do more of this. And I can't tell you how many phone calls we've gotten after our classes where students have come back to us and says, man, hey, we just had this rescue and we did this and we did that. And really what you guys taught us, believe it or not, that stuff really worked. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) ta-da. So that has been the most fulfilling part for us is seeing these guys going out and affecting rescue, utilizing the techniques that we've given them and building upon that and putting them in scenarios where, yeah, it's going to be challenging, but Hey, the best part about learning is that we're all learning together. If you want to try something new, let's try it. Let's do it here. Let's do it now. Let's do it in the class. So that way it's in a controlled environment so that when you do go out and you have to put it into play in your real world, scenario, you're like, yep. I know that scenario is going to work because I've already done it in training.
0: So, guys, is there any lessons you've learned from the recent flooding in Illinois um, that your task force responded to uh, that you would like to share with our listeners? And then also, do you have any final advice for responders that um, you know want to do things the correct way?
3: yeah absolutely. I mean, every time you go out the door training or uh obviously a, an actual call, you have to learn you know i mean you're you're kind of fooling yourself if you don't learn from something but uh this last time last year, when we were down in Southern Illinois, we were responding down to an area that was about fifty miles long, and it was in this levee district and we actually responded there for the potential of the levee failing so this was before it flooded, and um we were so we were down there in case that levee broke. And so it was a different situation is that you're not going down to a huge emergency, but then it was more of a pre plan. So having that knowledge and in talking about animals is now this is a huge area that they're using for farming and whatnot too. So we're dealing with, okay, so over at this farm there's horses and this farm there's cows and this farm there's, you know, pigs, and then you're trying to figure out, okay, if the levee breaks, you know, what is our contingency plans? One, obviously get the human factor out of there. And then two, what are we going to do about all the animals? So that was a different situation that we didn't uh, necessarily plan on being in. Um, luckily, the levee did not break, but we had all of those plans in place trying to figure out what are we going to do? So, and I don't think that we would have thought about that, you know, before, you know, going through like the ASAR course with Eric is that we that would we would only thought about the human factor and uh it would have been a second thought and then we would have been playing you know trying to play catch-up so that was huge um at that event when we were down south um a couple other things is uh you know the one thing that we've pretty much learned is that you know quality training is is everything there's 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 no substitute for quality of, of training so all these events that we have gone to, and it's not like we're Texas task force or Florida and we're going out multiple, multiple times. You know, we've gone out a few times, you know, and, and hopefully we'll be able to help some other people, you know, in the future here, but is that we got to get the training. We got to get some kind of knowledge. So you're safe out there. So the guys are safe. You know, we you never know what you're going to be experiencing. I mean, I remember when I was down in uh, in Hurricane Katrina and standing by as a fire resource and guys walking down the street with a six foot bow constrictor around his neck. And I'm looking at him like, what's going on here? You know, so you just never know, you know, what you're going to be exposed to but um yeah yeah last year that was one of the big things that we learned but we're always constantly and you you have to evaluate everything that you do and you have to improve upon everything
2: yeah and real and just to touch upon that real quick uh just to wrap things up real quickly eric for you um one of the questions we typically get a lot about our swiftwater rescue technician program is people are like well you know, I really like to take the training, but you know, I'm not sure how to go about getting involved or they're like, well, what kind of prerequisites do I need to take for the process? You know, they're like, do I need to be, you know, do I have to have lifeguard training or do I need to have water operations training or do I need to have rope operations training or what do we need? And the beauty of the Swiftwater Rescue Technician class that we teach is that there is no prerequisite. Well, I'm gonna back it up by one statement. The only prerequisite we have for our class is you have to have a love and respect for water and be able to keep yourself afloat. (laughs) Other than that, we want people to come out and enjoy the training. We we hope you have a come out, you know, you're able to come out and have a good time with it, enjoy it. And we're going to give you all the skills in that Swiftwater Rescue Technician class that you're going to need from basic ropes to basic understanding of the water to basic survival, as well as all the way up to using a boats on ropes as well. Boats on ropes. I like that. Boats on ropes. That's I a new that one for me. Boats on ropes. I like that. <laughs> and then finally, we're wrapping things up with actual victim scenarios.
1: Yeah, definitely. How can people find you? Do you guys have a website they can go to?
3: Yeah, we do have a Facebook page, you know, North Central Water Rescue. Uh, we do have a website as well, you know, so you can uh, Google that and look that up. Okay. And they can always email email us at
1: northcentralwaterrescue at gmail dot com too. That's perfect. And and for our yep. listeners, you know, I I will tell you this is a highly professional group. We have a lot of fun with them. Um, our ASAR instructors will continue to. Uh, We'll be sending them to North Central Water Rescue for their human rescue uh, certs and their research. And I really encourage you guys, uh, as you go through your training, even if you have your Swift water course um, certificates, go see these guys for the advanced class because it'll be a lifelong memory and it'll be a challenge that you'll be glad you did. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. We really appreciate it and we hope to talk to you in the future. And Miss Carla, do you have any parting thoughts or uh, of wisdom as we head out?
0: Um, You know, I have one little shout out to my animal control officers out there, Um, you know, reach out to your local fire department and, you know, just ask them if they would be interested in an animal handling class. I recently did that to our training coordinator and he was super excited and I'm going to go in and just teach a basic, you know, safety class to the firefighters about how to handle animals in distress. So I just kind of wanted to do a little shout out to them and, and just say, you know, don't be afraid because it's probably something that they would really like for you to do. Chuck and Tom, it was great to talk to you and make sure everybody check us out on Facebook and Instagram, subscribe to our podcast, and check us out on asrtraining.com.